Today on Peace Talks Radio, we spotlight veterans who, after completing their military service, make a choice to work actively for peace. Many of the things I learned at West Point and in the military altered my viewpoint of war because I grew up very pro-war. I thought that war was an effective security paradigm for making our country and the world safe. That's West Point grad and Iraq War veteran Captain Paul Chappelle, who's written many books about making peace. What changed? What was it about your service that transformed you? Seeing the limitations of violence and seeing how violence can actually backfire. We'll also hear from Gulf War veteran Eric Gustafson, who after serving in that war made it his vocation to work on behalf of Iraqi citizens ravaged by the war. Trying to get Americans to recognize that the conflict wasn't over, that the, there was still a price being paid by ordinary Iraqis. Former soldiers working actively now for peace, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. If you've seen coverage of any peace march or other event advocating for peace, you're bound to see some folks there under a banner or sign or cap or wearing a t-shirt that says, Veterans for Peace. These are folks who, having served in the U.S. Armed Services, and many of them in armed combat, have been moved to now be visibly active for the cause of peace and the end of war. For some, marching is the thing they choose to do, and we'll even hear from some later in our program at a 2011 Washington, D.C. march. But most of today's program is devoted to conversation with two veterans who have chosen different paths for their peaceful action following their service. Peace Talks Radio's Suzanne Kreider talked with both of them, and she's on the line with us from her office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Paul. So tell us a little bit about these two people we're about to hear from today. Why do you think they make an interesting pairing and contrast? You're right. There is an interesting pairing and contrast. What Eric Gustafson and Paul Chappelle have in common is they're about the same age. They both served in the military, Eric in the Gulf War, Paul in the Iraq War. They didn't have necessarily unpleasant experiences in the war. However, when they came out of the service, they've both worked in a very different but passionate way for peace. We'll hear your interview with Eric Gustafson later, but how would you briefly describe his work for peace? Eric was really concerned about Iraqi civilians, and he created on his own a non-governmental organization, an NGO, focused on helping Iraqis. It's called the Education for Peace in Iraq Center, EPIC. And EPIC does advocacy work in the United States as well as working on the ground with youth in Iraq. And then how would you characterize Paul Chappelle's approach toward promoting peace and an end to war? In comparison to Eric, Paul's work is more philosophical. Paul is a West Point graduate. He studied military history, and he was able to apply that to his experience in the war and has come up with a really fascinating philosophy of how to apply what he learned from the warrior ethos to this peaceful revolution to end war. Well, Paul's written now three books and plans to write more, so his writing and speaking is where his efforts are going largely? 
Right. Paul talks a lot about how the most important thing we can do to wage a peaceful revolution is to change people's minds. So it's more thought-based than action-based, like Eric Gustafson's approach. Both are powerful. They're just very different. Former U.S. Army Captain Paul Chappelle lives in Santa Barbara. His 2012 book is called Peaceful Revolution, How We Can Create the Future Needed for Humanity's Survival. And here's Suzanne Kreider's interview with Paul Chappelle. Paul, tell us about your military service. Where, when, what you were doing. I graduated from West Point in 2002, and I served in the Army until 2009. And I was deployed to Baghdad in 2006, and being at West Point and being in the military really helped with my transformation. How many of the things I learned at West Point and in the military altered my viewpoint of war. Because I grew up very pro-war. And I don't mean pro-war in any kind of psychotic sense, but I mean in the sense that I thought that war was an effective security paradigm for making our country and the world safe. What changed? What was it about your service that transformed you? Seeing the limitations of violence and seeing how violence can actually backfire. There was a Pew Research study done recently that found that 51% of people in the military now believe that using too much violence makes terrorism worse. So if you look at past wars, we would pretty much have open war with their civilian populations. If you look at World War II, we were bombing large civilian populations. But in this new era of mass media, when you kill civilians, you actually create more resentment against your own country. So things like Abu Ghraib or things like civilian killings, when they're done either intentionally or accidentally, which is often the case, because we don't have the kind of precision in terms of drone attacks that we claim to have. If you look at American politicians, they say that drones, they are extremely accurate, don't kill civilians. But that's not a, that's not true, of course, because you have technology that can fail, you have intelligence failures in terms of having faulty information. And when you kill civilians, you actually create more resentment against you because now we live in the era of YouTube and the Internet and something like Abu Ghraib happens and you see pictures all over the Internet, all over the international news. And the same thing is true when you see civilian killings. Iraq war veteran Paul Chappelle is our guest. He's the author of several books, including the 2012 release, Peaceful Revolution. Paul, you've got an interesting strategy because you were in the service, but it's not like you rejected your experience. So, for example, in your book, you you write about the warrior ethos, which you studied at West Point. Can you tell us what that is and how that's built into your peaceful revolution? Yeah, the Army's warrior ethos is, I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. And I saw how so many of the ideals I learned in the military actually apply to waging peace and how many of the warrior ideals necessary for warfare are also necessary for waging peace. If you look at Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Albert Schweitzer or Buddha or Socrates, they had a lot of those warrior ideals. And Gandhi even said, I am a soldier, but I am a soldier of peace. And I think that was one of the most surprising parts of my personal change in viewpoint was how I felt like West Point in many ways actually encouraged me to pursue this 
path of peace. And you can read these anti-war quotes from General MacArthur. There's numerous anti-war quotes from General Eisenhower, General Omar Bradley, who were also West Point graduates. So there is this tradition of this anti-war viewpoint. And there's a great quote from General MacArthur, where General MacArthur said, The soldier above all other people prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Well, let's take one for example. I will always place the mission first. What does that have to do with the peaceful revolution? Well, the most important thing is the mission. And there is a saying in the Army that you would be surprised and amazed at what you can accomplish when you get your ego out of the way. And so we have this mission of peace. And that mission of peace is more important than ego. It's more important than fame. It's more important than personal wealth. And you have to be able to subordinate your ego to the greater mission. And I think that that philosophy, the most important thing being the mission, and you prioritize that above everything else, is the attitude that you have to have for this very difficult struggle. When I describe your book, Peaceful Revolution, to people, many of them are confused when I say what it's about. And people will often say to me, he wants to end which war? When I say he wants to end all war, some folks are skeptical. How do you know that the end of war is possible? Well, I can relate to that viewpoint because I used to be very skeptical as well, and I'm still skeptical, I think. But when I began to study military history and learn about war from the military perspective, I saw the overwhelming evidence that human beings are not naturally violent. If you look at military history and you look at how people behave in violent situations, the evidence is overwhelming that we're not naturally violent. And we can see how war actually forms and how it spreads and how it damages economies, nations, and the planet. And also the fact that so much change has happened, which we often don't recognize. For example, I'm half Korean, a quarter white, and a quarter black, and I grew up in Alabama, and my ancestors were African slaves, and 500 years ago, things such as democracy, the right to vote, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, women's and civil rights virtually did not exist anywhere on the planet. And 200 years ago, Napoleon had overthrown the democratic government in France, and the only democracy in the world was the U.S. But we weren't a democracy if you were African-American. We weren't a democracy if you were female. We weren't a democracy if you were white, unless you owned land in most places. And so there has been dramatic change. 200 years ago in America, women couldn't vote or own property. Africans were slaves. And slavery had been around from, since the beginning of recorded history, state-sanctioned slavery. And now it has been abolished. Every country has a law against it. The difference between those issues and the issue of war, not only is it a moral issue, but it's also an issue that threatens human survival. And I think the urgency of the issue, along with what we know now about human nature about human beings being not naturally violent and how we can actually have more effective ways to solve conflicts gives me a lot of hope that we can end all war. Do you think you can see it in your lifetime? I think it depends upon what we do. People often ask me, well, how long will it take to end war? And I respond by saying, well, I can answer that question with another question. How long does it take to run a mile? You can run a mile in four minutes. You can run a mile in ten minutes. You can run a mile in half an hour. You can begin running a mile and quit halfway through. You can never take the first step. So how long it takes you to run a mile depends upon what you do, how hard you train, what your actions are. And in the same way, 
How long it takes to end war depends upon the quality and quantity of our actions. We could end war perhaps in 20 years, we might end war perhaps in 200 years, or we might never end war and humanity will go extinct. So it really depends upon what we do. I believe that we can end war, it's possible to end war, but ending war is not inevitable. It depends upon our actions. Paul, you start your most recent book, Peaceful Revolution, with an excerpt from General MacArthur, stated 1961. Could you read a section of that for us? Sure. There's a great quote. It's a quote from General MacArthur, and he said, You will say at once that although the abolition of war has been the dream of man for centuries, every proposition to that end has been promptly discarded as impossible and fantastic. But that was before the science of the past decade made mass destruction a reality. Now the tremendous evolution of nuclear and other potentials of destruction has suddenly taken the problem away from its primary consideration as a moral and spiritual question and brought it abreast to scientific realism. The abolition of war is no longer an ethical question to be pondered solely by learned philosophers and ecclesiastics, but a hardcore one for the decision of the masses whose survival is the issue. Paul, what about the General MacArthur quote is important to you? Basically what he is saying is that the issue of ending war is now an issue of human survival. If you look at the struggle to achieve women's rights or the struggle to achieve civil rights or the struggle to abolish slavery, those are very important issues. But the world wasn't going to end if slavery wasn't abolished. The world wasn't going to end if civil rights or women's rights wasn't achieved. But the issues we are dealing with now war, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, these issues threaten human survival. So we have to act with increased urgency and determination to solve these problems in a very timely way. Paul, it seems like some anti-war folks have an attitude that any soldier, anybody who serves in the military is um, pro-war. And what their purpose and their inner motivation is to seek war. What's your take on that? Well, I think that people in power control people by dividing people. So people in power, they want people in the peace movement to see the soldiers in the military as enemies. They want people in the military to see the peace movement as enemies. They want liberals to see Republicans as enemies and conservatives to see liberals as enemies. And one thing I realize is how much all these people really have in common. And I think I am an example of somebody who joined the military and I know many people who join the military thinking that the military is going to make the world safer and the military is going to promote peace. If you look at President Bush or President Obama, they both say that the military is promoting freedom and the military is promoting democracy and the military is making the world safer. And if you look at World War II when recruitment was very high, when people were eagerly being drafted, you had this sense that people in the military were going to defeat Hitler and defeat Imperial Japan and create world peace. So the military, if you look at their whole recruiting strategy, they never say you have to kill anybody. If you look at the Navy's new motto, it's a global force for good. And if you look at how they recruit, they recruit appealing to people's ideals and appealing to people's yearning for self-improvement, getting discipline, getting college money. And the problem with appealing to people's ideals is you get a lot of people in your organization who are idealistic. So a lot of people in the military join thinking they're going to make the world safer. They're going to help the women in Afghanistan. They're going to help the people in Iraq. And certainly not all the people in the military join with those kinds of intentions. Like any large organization, you have people with bad motives. But if you recognize 
what many of their intentions are, we have to offer a better security paradigm. We have to offer a better way to make the country and the planet safe without using war because war in many ways is a very old, archaic, and counterproductive method. If you look at the New Zealand Army, for example, they perform, mission, they perform missions of humanitarian aid, disaster relief, and protecting wells from poachers. And if the purpose of the American military is to protect the American people, the best way to protect the American people is to help people around the world through natural disaster relief, through humanitarian relief, humanitarian aid, and those kinds of things. And if you look at how the military is now, if you get rid of the military, you'll end up with basically private armies. There are people right now who want the military to become completely privatized. And if you look at Blackwater, the rise of these corporate armies, the rise of more, the, the, the change in how war is waged, where we have more civilian contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan than actual soldiers. So you could imagine a very dangerous situation where the military actually becomes privatized. And if we had a draft right now, we wouldn't be in any wars in the Middle East. Or if we were, there'd be vast public opposition. And that is exactly why there is no draft. The people who wage war realize if you have a draft in the 21st century, Americans are really going to start wondering about this whole war system. So to summarize, I would say that I'm an example, and there's many examples of soldiers I know who have good intentions. And that's a chance for peace people to actually reach out to them and dialogue with them and then, in addition to that, we have to offer a new security paradigm, a new way to make our country safe that is more effective and less counterproductive than war. Paul, your book describes seven muscles that we need to develop in order to end war. And the muscles are like weapons of peace. They're hope, empathy, appreciation, conscience, reason, discipline, and curiosity. With empathy, if we think about our listeners, and let's say they want to dedicate four hours on a Saturday afternoon to ending war, what are two specific action steps they could do to strengthen the muscle of empathy? I think that empathy has to be strengthened through training and through practice. And one example of how to strengthen it is I think that so much of the dialogue in our country is very divisive and polarizing and demonizing of each, each side. And one thing I explain to people, especially when I do this peace leadership training, is try to imagine yourself talking to somebody who has the complete opposite viewpoint of you. And how would you not only have empathy for that person, how would you not get angry? How would you not get angry? How would you not lose your temper? And how would you even have empathy? And that's a very difficult thing to do especially when you're talking about a very controversial issue. And that's what King and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and others were able to do so well. And so one thing I say, just a practical thing people can do, is if you're talking to anybody who has the opposing viewpoint, it is so important to listen and be respectful. If all you do is listen and be respectful, that is an important victory. Because I don't think there's ever been anyone in human history who has seriously said, I hate it when people listen to me. I hate it when people respect me. I can't stand it when people listen to me or respect me. Everybody likes to be listened to. Everybody likes to be respected. So when you listen to people and you are respectful, you make a very strong impression on them. 
especially in a culture like ours where there is so little respect and so little listening. If you listen to somebody about a controversial issue like war, you have one viewpoint, they have the opposite viewpoint. And if you listen to that person, they'll walk away from the conversation and they might say, wow, those peace people, we don't see eye to eye, but they are really nice people. That person actually listened to me. And my own wife doesn't listen to me. My children don't listen to me. Nobody listens to me. I get what you mean by listening. I can see people listening. Break it down. What is being respectful? What What are our listeners doing or not doing? Well, that's what I'm uh, trying to get to is basically people ask me then, well, how do you listen to people? And the key to listening is you have to have empathy. If you don't have empathy for somebody, you can't really hear what they're saying. Even if the person has the most outrageous viewpoint, you can imagine. If you empathize with a person, that's when you begin to understand where they're coming from. Because if you look at Martin Luther King Jr., he was getting dozens of death threats a day. His house was bombed. He was arrested multiple times. He was eventually killed. But you never saw him talk about the people who were oppressing him in this demonizing, dehumanizing way that you see liberals talk about conservatives and vice versa. And he had much more right to demonize his opponent. Or if you look at Frederick Douglass, who came out of slavery, you didn't hear him using that demonizing, dehumanizing language of white people. Or if you look at Gandhi, how he talked about the British, he didn't talk about the British in this demonizing way. And of course, he had much more right to, because look at the conditions he was living in. Look at the conditions that King was living in. Or look at Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was in jail for 27 years. And he was actually able to win the hearts and minds of some of his prison guards through having a respectful attitude toward them. So the thing about waging peace is that you respect them as a human being, and you recognize that in this struggle, your opponent is ignorance, your opponent is hatred, your opponent is greed, your opponent is misunderstanding, and you want to attack their hatred and defeat it, you want to attack their ignorance, you want to attack their misunderstanding, and how do you do that effectively? And if you hate them back or if you demonize them, you actually magnify their hatred. And by respecting them, it opens a doorway where you can directly attack their hatred, attack their ignorance. And you can't convert everybody from that opposing point of view, but as King and Mandela and Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and many, many others showed, you can convert quite a number and enough to create critical mass in how people think. We'll have more later in the program with Paul Chappelle, West Point grad and Iraq war veteran and author of the book Peaceful Revolution how we can create the future needed for humanity's survival. When we come back, Suzanne Kreider talks with another veteran working actively for peace. For many years, he's been trying to shape a peaceful future for war-ravaged Iraqi citizens. That's when Peace Talks Radio continues after this short break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. With all of our episodes going back to 2002, available to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and on today's program we're spotlighting veterans who, after completing their military service, make a choice to work actively for peace. As we mentioned at the top of the program, if you attend a peace march of any kind in recent years, you'll see Veterans for Peace in the crowd, as our Suzanne Kreider did at an event on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. in 2011. My name is Scott Camille. I live in Gainesville, Florida, and I was in the Marine Corps from 1965 to 1969. I spent 20 months in Vietnam from March of 1966 through November of 1967. I have two Purple Hearts. The public will listen oftentimes more to a veteran than they will to a non-veteran, even if the non-veteran and the veteran are saying the same thing about our foreign policy. So I really feel that it is my duty to be working for peace. I, I took an oath when I went in the Marine Corps to defend the Constitution against all threats, foreign and domestic. We have a domestic threat to the Constitution. The Constitution's being shoot up by the Congress, by the Supreme Court, um, it, it's terrible. And in a democracy, the duty of the citizens is really to control their government. That's our duty. And the citizens of the United States are not controlling the government. We are the employers. Everybody in the government, the president, the Supreme Court, the Congress, they are public servants. They are our employees. We are the employers. And we're here in Washington to tell um, our employees that they're not doing the work we want them to do. Vietnam War veteran, Scott Camille. Next to our other major guest on today's program, Gulf War veteran Eric Gustafson, who, as Suzanne Kreider mentioned earlier, later went on to establish the non-governmental organization EPIC, the Education for Peace in Iraq Center. Was there anything in your experience of serving in the military that changed how you viewed war and peace and maybe could have been a precursor to the work that you've done since then? Well, absolutely. I mean, it was the 91 Gulf War. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people celebrate uh, um, Colin Powell and the, the Powell Doctrine because al- Americans came home and only we, we lost very few guys in that war. Um, and of the guys that we lost, it was mostly from friendly fire incidents or from uh, accidents, um, vehicle accidents and things like that. Um, so, I mean, it is a good thing that so few Americans died in the 91 Gulf War. But... I saw the other side of the Powell Doctrine, and that was the number of Iraqis who were killed. And this was, you know, you had a a dictatorship, you had uh, conscripts. These were Iraqis who didn't choose to serve, they had to serve. Um, They were deployed. If they had gone against their orders, they would have been killed. And they were in Kuwait, and then with the um, U.S. military coming in, overwhelming firepower, you know, 42 days of a very intensive air war that killed so many Iraqis that uh, probably would have given the opportunity had turned and fled. Um, So, and one of the worst cases was uh, seeing the aftermath of the highway of death. This was the um, exodus of the Iraqi military out of Kuwait when they expected an amphibious assault and also when the ground forces moved in. And that... um, Exodus on that highway, um, I forget what the highway is, but the highway between uh, Kuwait City going back to Basra um, was just completely, like almost every vehicle was destroyed. 
and um, an unknown number of Iraqis died uh, when they were f when they were leaving when they were in retreat. Um, so I, that that to me always bothered me, and it really told me that uh, sometimes decisions made at the highest level can have terrible consequences for so many in terms of costing lives. We're speaking with Eric Gustafson, Eric. Tell us what you've done since your military service around promoting peace. Well, when I got out of the service, I went uh, on to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and became an activist on a lot of human rights issues. For years, I mostly focused on East Timor. But then in the summer of 1997, I had an opportunity to travel to Iraq on a humanitarian fact-finding mission. And what I witnessed firsthand was a war that had never really ended. Uh, the, with the um, ceasefire agreement in 1991, uh, Saddam Hussein, the regime, was left intact, left in power. Um, the agreement uh, with the UN and um, was that he had to completely eliminate his uh, weapons programs, weapons of mass destruction program, but there was no way to completely verify that he had done so. And so international sanctions had remained in place. And those sanctions were doing far more to har harm ordinary Iraqis than it was in harming the regime or compelling it to um, come clean with the UN. Um, so the war, what I saw was basically a war that had gone from the front lines of traditional battlefields into people's homes, into hospitals, into the streets, um, cities of, of Iraq, and affecting ordinary civilians while the regime was able to consolidate power and stay in power because the people became so much more dependent on the regime. Um, I, I just saw what I, what I felt was, was a terrible policy. And so that compelled me when I came back from that mission um, to go on the lecture tour, um, talk with Americans as a veteran the, of the 91 Gulf War, um, and trying to get Americans to recognize that the conflict wasn't over, that the, there was still a price being paid by ordinary Iraqis, and that fundamental changes needed to happen in U.S. policy. And um, after that, I ended up moving to Washington, D.C., and I formed the Education for Peace in Iraq Center in 1998 with the mission of uh, improving humanitarian conditions for all Iraqis and bringing an end to conflict there. The acronym is EPIC. Education for Peace in Iraq Center. And full disclosure, that's how you and I met. I was here in 2005 and volunteered to work with EPIC for a month. And where did, where did the germ, where did the seed of this idea for EPIC come from? It's, my approach to the work has always been uh, through solidarity work. So for, I think for me, my, my, a lot of my political socialization happened as an activist on a campus in, at the UW-Madison. I mean, certainly I formed some of my views when I was in the service and even before then, but I think most, a lot of my uh, views about how to affect social change came together as an activist at, at uh, Madison. And because of my experience with the East Timor Action Network and I saw how effective only a dozen chapters of activists around, scattered around the country, um, how much of an impact um, that small network could have on U.S. policy when it came to Indonesia and East Timor, um, I, I wanted to be able to apply the same lessons to um, creating uh, social change around U.S.-Iraq policy. Um, so that's really kind of where it, the idea came from. And my, my ideas about solidarity work is that you, it, part of it is if you want to be effective, 
you have to, one, know how to create change in Washington, D.C., but secondly, you have to always stay in contact with the people your mission serves. So in this case, the people of Iraq. Um, so I've always uh, spent time uh, developing, you know, really making, um, forming friendships with the Iraqi diaspora, Iraqi Americans here, um, but also always uh, looking at opportunities to get to know Iraqis in Iraq as well. And what they share with me has always informed the work that we do. Tell us about a success in Washington in terms of your advocacy work. Well, one of the early successes we had was to um, get the the story of the humanitarian crisis under international sanctions and the regime into newspapers. There was a complete blackout. In fact, the New York Times refused to run any of these stories about that looked at... Um, the humanitarian consequences of international sanctions. The, I think on the edit, there was an editorial decision made at the highest level that, look, this was because of the regime. It wasn't because of international sanctions. So they would just flat out refuse. My um, twin brother, Jeff, wrote a letter to the New York Times shortly after a UNICEF report came out um, that uh, found that the UNICEF report basically said uh, between 1991 and 1998, um, as there were as many excess deaths among children under the age of five um, as 500,000. So that was the upward es estimate um, that UNICEF was making at the time. So he wrote a letter to the New York Times about that. The um, letters editor actually changed his letter and attributed that statistic to Saddam Hussein's regime and ran the letter that way. We, we um, immediately uh, activated our base and um, just put enormous pressure on the New York Times to uh, publish a correction. And eventually they agreed to run a new letter without changing it. Um, so we were able to get that letter in. And then not too long after, Stephen Kinzer uh, ran three great, um, a series of three stories about the humanitarian situation in Iraq. Um, so it was the first time that we finally broke through that wall and we started to get stories about the humanitarian situation. At the same time, you had uh, Dennis Holliday resign from the UN. He was in charge of the UN Oil for Food program in Iraq. And he, we uh, worked with other groups here in Washington to have him testify. Um, so the combination of that actually led to the Clinton administration raising the cap on how much oil Iraq could sell under the Oil for Food program. And that, without question, saved a lot of lives. What's worked better than you expected with EPIC? It's hard to answer that question because I've been pretty unsatisfied. Um, I've wanted to really have much more of an impact than we've been able to have so far. Um, but if there is something, I think, uh, I think one role that we've played is because we've been focused on Iraq for as long as we have, um, we've been in a unique position to, I think, offer a lot of good advice to a lot of different organizations when they suddenly became uh, interested in the, in the issues that we were working on. Um, part of it had to do with the lead-up to the uh, 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. A lot of organizations were mobilizing. There was a um, very active and strong peace movement across the country to try to prevent that war from happening. And so I think... It was, it was great to be able to be in a position where we had so many contacts with the Iraqi community. We know the issues so well. We knew the issues about um, Iraq's weapons programs and 
Um, and we could immediately uh, question some of what the administration was saying and get that information out um, to activists. So I think that was probably one of the most exciting roles that we've been able to play over the years. It's unfortunate that that movement didn't prevent the war from happening, um, but at least we were able to uh, call to question the rush to war and uh, call into question a lot of what the administration was saying, which was just, some of it was, was quite false. More with Gulf War veteran Eric Gustafson, who's also the founder of the Education for Peace in Iraq Center in Washington, D.C., coming up on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with much more on all of our episodes available to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and on today's program, we're spotlighting veterans who, after completing their military service, make a choice to work actively for peace. My name is Amber Stone. I live in Odenton, Maryland, and I served in the Army for six years from 2003 to 2009. I served in Korea for a year, and then I served in Iraq for a year, and then I went to um, National Guard after my active duty time and did Med Command. I'm a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. We need to bring more of our soldiers home um, so that we can be defensive about attacks and different things like that. Um, All our soldiers are mostly gone. What if something else happened here? We would not be able to handle it. That's veteran Amber Stone, interviewed by Suzanne Kreider at a Veterans for Peace event on the Mall in Washington, D.C. in 2011. In 2012, Suzanne interviewed Gulf War veteran Eric Gustafson, who, after serving in that war, made it his vocation to work on behalf of Iraqi citizens who'd been ravaged by the wars and sanctions placed on them in the decades that followed his service time. We continue now with Suzanne's conversation with Eric Gustafson. Tell us a story about an Iraqi that you really can't forget. There's, there's so many Iraqis that immediately come to mind from my recent time in Iraq, um, but I'll just share one story it was a young man from Bakuba, in, which is just north of Baghdad. Um, this is a city that is, has a very terrible and sad reputation of having produced most of Iraq's uh, suicide bombers. Um, of course, most of the suicide bombers are foreigners, but there have been some Iraqis who have carried out suicide attacks, and uh, most of them have come from Bakuba. Um, he was forced to, to his, he and his family was forced to leave their home um, because of the violence um, there in the city. 
and the militia, the local militia, um, took over his home as part of their base of operations. So they were forced out. They fled north. Um, very smart guy. His his name is Ahmed, and um, he went on to medical school. Uh, he's now um, doing his residency. But what I remember so much is just his personality and just how generous and incredible he was, and how um, being in the north and and uh, having so many Kurdish friends and that idea, you know, which again here in the U.S. we take for granted because we're the post-civil rights movement generation, you know. Um, Martin Luther King is now in our DNA. And um, so there's so many Americans that are, are much more colorblind. In Iraq, you know, things still are relatively tribal. And yet I saw this young man, and there's so many other young Iraqis who I've met like him, um, who also seem to have that in their DNA. They, um, he had Kurdish friends. He had Shia and Sunni friends. And um, also what was incredible about him that I remember so strongly is his storytelling abilities, his language skills. I mean, he spoke very good English as well as Arabic. He had learned Kurdish rapidly. Um, and his musical skills. And you'll find a lot of Iraqis like this. I mean, he played guitar. And he not only could play all kinds of amazing uh, songs from you know, Qasim, an Iraqi pop star, um, or Amr Diab, the Egyptian pop star. Um, but he'd start playing the Beatles, Dylan. I mean, you know, and that's, he, it, it also kind of, what it was exciting about him and his story is that I also realized that even though Iraq had been under sanctions and under a dictatorship for so long, um, for this younger generation, the world had suddenly opened up. And they were getting this music, you know, the music sheets from all these different bands, and they were discovering all of what's out there and also aspiring to want to see things in Iraq the way that they see things in the United States or in European countries because they're all, the world is becoming a small place. It's becoming so connected. Um, and so Ahmed, I mean, he, he, he's a great example of a friendship and a story that I'm so, I'm so excited about that it's part of what motivates me to do this work. One Iraqi that it comes to mind was a young woman, Amina, who was in the hospital when I was there in the summer of 97. And um, she had just gone through surgery. They didn't have enough um, uh, anesthesia to be able to put her to sleep, so she felt a lot of the pain of the surgery. And they still didn't have all of what they needed, um, all the medicine that she needed um, for her to uh, become to return to full health. It just continues to bother me. Um, and it, there were others, including younger Iraqis, especially now being a parent of a one-year-old. Um, you know, I can even relate to it even more so now. Um, but, do, but I remember the parents with these young children who were malnourished, um, some of whom were diagnosed with cancer and they didn't have the proper cancer medicine that was required to be able to put it in remission. Uh, it was horrible. I mean, it's the worst thing in the world to hear parents, uh, um, you know, sc their screams and cries of grief over a child who can be, uh, you know, possibly cured, um, can uh, receive the medical care that they need, but the hospital didn't have the um, medicine and equipment that it needed um, to be able to uh, provide for those children. Eric Gustafson, let's say you have a niece or a nephew who's 19 years old, 
and they come to you and say, I sincerely want to enlist and serve my country, what would you say to him or her? I think I'd just share a little bit of my own experience so that they know fully what they're getting into. Um, I think they have to be prepared, especially in uh, today's world, uh, you know, for the possibility of having to serve in combat and combat in a very challenging environments like Afghanistan um, or in the Middle East. Um, so I would, I would share some of that. Um, I feel a little bit better about someone entering the service today than had they gone in, uh, say, in uh, 2002, 2003, 2004. Um, I think what, what is truly tragic, and it's something that everybody has to know going into the service, is that you, know, you're, you, you will fall under a command structure. And if that command structure makes colossally bad decisions, um, like invading a country without being prepared for the aftermath, or continuing to execute uh, operations um, with rules of engagement of kill and capture the enemy when things have clearly moved into an occupation phase. Um, these are horrible judgments and decisions that were made that has affected a generation of veterans who uh, were put in positions where they uh, killed civilians, innocent civilians, because the rules of engagement were such that it was much more about protecting your guys than it was about protecting civilians and what it should have been as a as a more traditional counterinsurgency operation. Um, so that I think it's it's having full knowledge about the potential risks of when you go into the service. And the last thing is just that you know when you go into the service, uh, you become a member of the U.S. military. And you do give, forego some rights that you have as a civilian. Um, a civilian can quit their job. When you're in the service, you can't really quit your job. Um, so, uh, and you do have to follow orders. Um, so I think that's the main things to, to keep in mind for those that are considering military service. I'm wondering if there's some way to merge an interest in military service with peacemaking. I've seen it already. I mean... You know, there's. You look at some of the debates that have occurred within the military establishment around Iraq, and there were some that were taking a very aggressive attitude that no, we needed to escalate uh, the combat mission in Iraq, where you had others that were saying no, that's actually counterproductive. Um, it needs to. We really need to shift to toward a mission that's much more about protecting civilians and um, finding ways to co-opt uh, insurgents, at least those that are willing to uh, pursue things through political or other means rather than continue to pursue um, things by violent means. Um, you'll find that in the, in the military establishment, some men and women who are very interested in how you bring an end to conflicts, when, you know, how do you bring an end to wars. Um, and that, I think, is very much part of the ethos that you'll find among some of the um, the institutes that are out there um, and some of the top military scholars um, it's not it's not all about war sometimes it's also about how you bring an end to the war how do you um, bring an end to violent conflict sectarian conflict civil wars I'm speaking with Eric Gustafson he's the executive director for the Education for Peace in Iraq Center located in Washington DC Eric how can our listeners support your work at epic well, 
One way is to join us. Um, they can visit us on the web at www.epic-usa.org. That's E-P-I-C-USA.org. Um, it's a great way to learn more about the projects we're trying to make happen in the field in Iraq with young people um, or being part of our advocacy work here in Washington, D.C. Um, they can make donations, and they can also talk with their lawmakers. Probably the most important message that members of Congress need to hear from Americans today is that the United States needs to have an ongoing commitment to help vulnerable and displaced Iraqis and to continue to support Iraq's peace and development. Um, just because the, there's been a U.S. Uh, withdrawal and our um, service members have come home doesn't mean that there's not violence and conflict in Iraq. It doesn't mean that Iraq is out of the woods. There's still other roles that we can play, very constructive roles um, through development assistance, humanitarian aid, uh, and e even people-to-people, -people, civil society-to-civil society diplomacy. And that's something that uh, Congress needs to hear, that Americans want to see that ongoing commitment. Eric, what do you believe about peace today? That it's not something that's done passively, that it's something that requires a lot of work. Um, it requires uh, efforts, whether it's on a personal basis in the community, um, and it's uh, or it's in the schools, it's addressing bullying and fights that occur, um, whether, or, or whether it's, uh, you're looking at it on an international level. Um, it requires a lot of work, and it requires um, efforts on a, whether it's through education and cultural work, um, or whether it's through policy work and advocacy, and um, it's something that takes a lot of work. Because you believe peace takes a lot of work, what's the one thing you think our listeners can do to help in terms of ending war? I would say that it's advocating that the U.S. play a, a stronger, more constructive role uh, in the international community and also through our own assistance programs um, to bring an end to violent conflicts around the world. Uh, and that's through very smart strategies, whether it's development assistance, whether it's strengthening our peace-building capacities, whether it's in, uh, strengthening the capabilities of peacekeepers um, with the United Nations. Um, all of those, I think, can help uh, move things, move the world uh, toward greater peace and less conflict. Gulf War veteran Eric Gustafson, founder of the Education for Peace in Iraq Center in Washington, D.C. A link to more about his work is on our website, peacetalksradio.com. We'll conclude our program today with a bit more now of Suzanne Kreider's conversation with West Point grad and Iraq War veteran Captain Paul Chappelle, who's written many books about making peace, including the 2012 release Peaceful Revolution, How We Can Create the Future Needed for Humanity's Survival from Eastman Studio Press. I think that Peaceful Revolution is more about changing how people think at a fundamental basic level. If you look at all human problems, all human problems, war, racism, sexism, slavery, oppression, injustice, poverty, environmental destruction, they all come from how people think. And all progress comes from changing how people think. 200 years ago in America, you were a Virginian first. You were uh, above all state loyalty, above national loyalty. You were a Virginian above all else. But now we see ourselves as American first. I'm an American first, I'm a Virginian second, or I'm a Californian second. So if we could go from state loyalty to national loyalty, why can't we take one more step 
and say, above all, I am a human being. I'm a member of the global family. I'm also an American. I'm also a Californian or a Georgian. But above all, I am a member of the human race. How do we change that kind of thinking? Because I understand what you're saying. You're saying develop these seven muscles. And I think of that on a micro level. But how? what's your macro strategy for ending war? Well, I think that in terms of that specific question, how do you change that attitude from state loyalty to national loyalty or national loyalty to global loyalty and identity? The way that it went from state identity to national identity is the country changed. The country changed in a way where the states became more integrated, and the reality of America today is that we are an interconnected country. If one state has problems, other states can be affected. So how do we go from national loyalty to global identity, national identity to global identity? And the reality of the world today is the world is so interconnected that we are truly a global family. If there's a problem in any country, the other countries can be affected. If one country is not secure, the other countries can also suffer the consequences of that. And the only way to make America safe and secure in the 21st century is to also make other countries safe and secure. So first of all, the reality of the world today is that we are truly interconnected. And we have to help people understand that reality. So the advantage we have is that is how the world is now interconnected. And we have to help people see those interconnections. Paul, in your book, you talk about the difference between naive hope and realistic hope. Would you just explain that? And then how does the latter, how does realistic hope help enact change towards peace? That's a really good question. It's making that distinction between naive hope and realistic hope. I'm trying to... Hope has very much become a cliche in our culture. And we have to remove that cliche and understand what hope really is. So there's two kinds of hope. First, you have naive hope. And naive hope is based fundamentally on a sense of helplessness. So an example of naive hope would be, well, everything's going to work itself out. Or some messianic leader or some messianic president or some great leader is going to solve all our problems. If I just vote for the right president, there will magically be world peace. Or I just got to pray for it. So you don't really know what you can do. And out of this sense of helplessness, you give responsibility to a great leader or to a divine source and hope that they will fix everything for you. And the realistic hope, though, is based on evidence. So if you look at realistic hope, it's based on, to use myself in, as an example, why do I think we can end war? Well, to me, it's based all on evidence. I used to have the exact opposite viewpoint. I used to think that war was inevitable, and I used to think that human beings are naturally violent, and I used to think that war actually makes us safe. But I've studied military history, and I've studied social movements, and I've seen how far attitudes have changed in America and around the world. Attitudes towards slavery, attitudes toward the oppression of women, even attitudes toward war. The attitude toward war has dramatically changed, and if anyone doubts this, ask yourself why there is no draft. Why do the people who perpetuate war in our country, the political leaders who perpetuate war, why do they not bring back the draft? Because they know that if you bring back the draft today, the American public will turn against war. Because most Americans, to make them support war, you have to separate the war from their families. If their kids are going to war, if college kids in America today are being drafted, they will start to speak out. And I have evidence that things have changed for the better. I'm part black, part Korean, grew up in Alabama, 
women today can vote and own property, and also what I know about human nature, us not being naturally violent. And if you look at what can we can do, if you look at civil rights, women's rights, the movement to abolish slavery, ending apartheid in South Africa, if you look at all those techniques, if you look at Gandhi, who defeated the British Empire, the most powerful empire on earth, without firing a single bullet, I have confidence that we can move forward based on evidence from the past, evidence about human nature, and the evidence of techniques that do work which are nonviolent in nature. So that's a big difference because naive hope comes from this feeling of helplessness and realistic hope comes from this feeling of empowerment and it comes from evidence and it comes from the knowledge that we can do something to solve these problems. If you look at Martin Luther King Jr. or Des Archbishop Desmond Tutu, they were religious people, but they didn't just say, well, let's just pray to God to solve all these problems. Ar Martin Luther King Jr. and Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, we have to solve these problems ourselves. We have to stand up and solve these problems ourselves. For realistic hope to work, you have to believe that the end is possible. You have to have evidence that your goal can be reached. And that, I think, is the most difficult part, where we live in a culture where the whole idea of world peace has become this joke. When people hear world peace, they think of beauty pageant contestants, and they think it's a joke. And so we have to show, with evidence, why world peace is not inevitable, but why it is, in fact, possible. And when I say world peace, I mean the end of politically organized violence between countries. We might still have murder. We might still have violent crime, which we can also reduce, but ending this very destructive form of organized warfare, politically organized warfare between countries, which I think is more than possible if we look at the evidence and if we take action. You'll find links to Paul Chappelle's many books on peacemaking, as well as a link to veteran Eric Gustafson's work for Iraqi citizens on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, also where you can hear all the programs in our series going back to 2002. Order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast or our free monthly newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation. It really will help. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, Seasons Rotisserie Bar and Grill in Albuquerque, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.